this year, August 9th through the 15th, 2019, we are bringing back our G3X conference here at Cal State Fullerton's Mahalo College of Business and Economics, and we will focus on innovation. We have great speakers coming like Father Greg Boyle of Homeboy Industries, who innovated social enterprise, Stephanie L. Smith, social media director for JPL, NASA, and the Mars Rover, who innovated their award-winning social media strategy that won them seven Webby Awards. We have talks on 3D printed hearing aids for Syrian refugees affected by bomb blasts, counseling services after the Vegas shooting, housing first changing the face of homelessness, esports networks and their value for education, VR classrooms, and so many more things. We are hosting a CEO accelerator training program and half day sessions on board development and grant writing as well. At the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research, we are just starting a project researching organizations who were under a half million dollar annual budget in 2007, but grew to over a million dollar annual budget by 2012, and were able to sustain it by 2017. This means organizations who were very small just before the recession, and doubled in size at that time during the recession when most organizations were shrinking. Back then, I was leading one of these organizations. My organization grew during the recession and just afterwards from $400,000 to $1.6 million a year annual budget. Our growth surprised many people, hey, most of all me. I was confident in our strategy and programs, but I didn't really think it would happen like it did. My goal now is to find others who had this kind of success and see what we all have in common. I want to see if there are methods that may stand out as templates for other organizations. You've probably heard me say on this podcast that the Pareto Principle applies in social sector funding, more commonly known as the 80-20 rule. It states that 80% of all funding in America goes to the top 20% of organizations. It is also true that 20% of organizations nationwide are over a million dollars annual revenue, and that 65% are under $200,000 annual revenue. Now that tells me that 20% of organizations have made it and are accomplishing their mission with varying degrees of success. And 15% are well on their way, but 65% are failing, floundering, or just need help. So what have those in that 15% camp figured out that the others have not? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the subject of our podcast today. Welcome to 501c3BS. I'm your host, Sue Velasco, director of the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at Cal State Fullerton's Mahalo School of Business and Economics. Join me today as we debunk the myths of the social sector. We will cut down the weeds and clear your path for organizational growth. My guest when I'm finishing my research project on organizations who grew during the recession is that I will find out something shocking. My bet is that most of the organizations that grew wildly didn't do it initially from huge new donors knocking down their door. In fact, many may be completely unknown to the funder community. Most of them probably do it from earned income. Jim Mazoka spoke about this at last year's G3X conference. All right, now, 63% of our sector's money comes from only one of these squares. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to guess or think which one of them, for this particular statistic, we removed hospitals and universities from the equation. All right, so 63% comes from only one of these squares. So how many people think that it comes from foundations? How many people think it comes from individuals? How many people from government? 
How many people from corporations? How many people fees for service? Squeeze from stones. All right, great. Okay. So here's the surprising answer: fees for service. Sixty-three percent of our money comes from fees for service. Jan is correct. Okay. Organizations that are not very successful spend a great deal of time, energy, and money to find the latest grants, find out where the investors are, and hire fund development staff, usually with very few results. These organizations often put funding as the primary focus and then plan to tailor their programs to fit funders' needs. But this is actually backwards. Organizations exist to deliver on a mission. Mission is interpreted through programs that carry out that mission. Funding follows the mission, not the other way around. When an organization has great programs delivering on an important mission, the funding just comes, and often it is earned income delivered through innovation. So, what causes innovation? Innovation is not what most people think it is. If you ask people what they think innovation is, they will say, oh, you know, creative people inventing new ways of doing things and thinking outside the box. But I disagree. Innovation doesn't necessarily have anything to do with creativity, as in making something from nothing. Innovators don't even see a box. Innovation is nothing more than a scientific approach to finding solutions, mixed with an entrepreneurial approach to scaling up those solutions once they're found. An example that shows you what I mean is this. organization is in bad shape, losing money or treading water for a long time. A new leader comes in. That person doesn't fire staff or hire development people. That person does the first thing innovative leaders do. It is what any good leader should do. A comprehensive evaluation to see what is working and what is failing. Before one can theorize what should work, one must know precisely what isn't working. An evaluation is not just a small thing. It's not, hey, let's have a team meeting and talk about what's wrong. These kind of evaluations don't really work because people are afraid to talk and they want to please the new leader. It needs to be a comprehensive evaluation of 60 to 90 days. A good evaluation usually consists of an anonymous survey with no more than 10 questions that allow people to voice an opinion without any repercussion. While that is going on, the new leader has to make themselves an expert on the organization. They will review old documentation, look at old plans that were or were not ever realized. They learn the history. They will have one-on-one -on -one conversations with each of the staff, board members, and also longtime volunteers. The next step is to convene focus groups. Surveys, history, and interviews can tell a leader what the problems are but they usually will not give the leader a sense of priority or how entrenched in a culture problems can be. That is where focus groups come in. A group dynamic allows problems that are most felt to rise to the top as they get discussed and cultural issues to also rise. When I took over a cultural center with a 20% deficit as we were barreling towards a recession in late 2007, I conducted 13 focus groups over 60 days. We talked to seniors, youth, two volunteer groups, boards, staff, the Korean community, and the Latino community leaders. These are the two largest ethnic groups in the region. Visual artists, performing artists, the business community, the nonprofit community, and even man on the street groups at the local farmer's market. 
That combined with surveys and interviews told us exactly what was working, what was broken, or had never really worked at all, and what were the cultural stumbling blocks. But most importantly, it also told us what were the priorities that had to be fixed first. The final step in the evaluation process is to issue a report on the evaluation findings presented to the major stakeholders such as the board, staff, major funders, and volunteers. And that report must be comprehensive. It should include analytics from your online surveys, graphs, charts, and statistics. It should include priorities given. It should also include a SWOT analysis, the kind used by businesses to evaluate where an organization is standing and where they are going. SWOT stands for Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats. Strengths and weaknesses are internal to the organization and are best told by staff, clients, and volunteers. Opportunities and threats, on the other hand, are external and best told by the CEO and the board who are the outwardly facing arm working in the community at large. Your focus groups will help with that also. A SWOT will help you figure out how to build on internal strengths, overcome weaknesses, pounce on opportunities, and mitigate threats. The evaluation tells the leader and the new team if the organization's programs do not serve the mission as intended, are not quality programs as may be the case, or are not well known to the clientele that need them. The next part of moving up the mountain of success is also something any good leader does. Planning. Planning is best done in a consensus way. The first step to planning is holding a stakeholder retreat. Invite not just the board, but anyone who has a major stake in your success. That could include staff, funders, or super engaged volunteers. This is crowdsourcing in real life. A capable digital organization could maybe do this online, but it's great to meet in person. Your retreat has one purpose. Based on the evaluation and the SWOT and the mission statement of the organization, to create a vision of one program or staff goal, one board or leadership goal, and one funding or capacity development goal. What is most important given the mission? Always tie it back to the mission and the evaluation. What is standing in the way of these goals? What steps or objectives need to be reached to get these goals? If this process is their process, it will be their ideas that you put up on that whiteboard not your ideas, and ownership is half the battle. If the mission statement is getting in the way because it no longer matches the idea you have for yourself as an organization, you may need to spend some time fixing that. Go back and listen to our program on mission statements. I talked to Karen Heron, the former CEO of the Kansas Food Bank and executive coach in Orange County and one of our speakers coming up at the G3X conference. She more than doubled her organization during the recession, and I asked her to what she attributes that success. Without hesitation, she said planning. Up to now, we haven't done anything innovative. We have just done the best practices for good dynamic leadership, evaluation, building consensus, and planning. The next hill to climb on our journey to summit the mountain of success is staffing. Jim Collins in the national bestseller, Good to Great, says when talking about successful organizations, people are not your most important asset. The right people are. We found that they first got the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people in the right seats, and then figured out where to drive it. Jim Collins is right. The wrong people can make for a toxic culture when change is occurring. The right people can only be effective if they are in the right seats. 
In many cases, these changes can also fix cultural problems, cut expenses that are weighing down the organization, and energize staff that remain. In my own case, growth could not happen without changes in staff, changing some contract positions to staff and vice versa, and making sure important seats were filled by the right people. So at this point, you've climbed three hills to the base camp for innovation. You have evaluated what is happening. You've made a team plan to fix it and strengthen the team along the way. Now you are ready for innovation. As we have already said, innovation is nothing more than simply scientific experimentation on a small level coupled with the entrepreneurship needed to scale up the programs once you find the solutions from your experiments. So let's analyze the scientific method. This is the method of innovation, and it has six steps. Step one, ask a question. In the case of a charitable organization, the question should be some detailed type of, how can we better serve our mission? In the case of my cultural center, it was, how can we bring the center out into the communities with the most need and fill the holes that are not being filled? Step two, research. The rules of science tell us that we are at our best when we can profit from others' research. The next climb up the mountain is research, seeking out model programs. The easiest way to innovate is to build on the innovation of others. How many people decide that they want to build a better mousetrap, but never look to see what others have designed, what is effective, and what is on the market? What if a model program is exactly what we want to do, being done effectively somewhere else far away? We could just take that program wholesale, make a few tweaks, and adopt it. It already has proof of concept, making it easier to sell to investors. But sometimes, that program is just not there. Then we can research elements of the program in different contexts and see how we can adopt them. In my organization, our research told us that there was plenty of need in North Orange County. We found that there was a huge disparity in central Anaheim between the haves and the have-nots. While an average income in Orange County in 2007 was $85,000 a year for a family of three, it was only $35,000 a year for a family of five in a group of neighborhoods that we wanted to serve. We found schools, foster care, homeless shelters, and more that were looking for our services in those neighborhoods. We wanted to start the first STEAM programs in Orange County. STEAM was a new concept in 2009, catching fire across the country using arts to teach STEM subjects with the idea that most new jobs are internet jobs that will require knowledge of both technology and design. Step three of the scientific method, construct a hypothesis. In charitable organizations, we call this a theory of change. If we do X program, Y will get better. You could also call this a case for funding because the theory is a case in which funders invest. Our theory was that with high quality STEAM programs in places of need, test scores would go up, graduation rates would go up, and students would be better prepared for the jobs of the future. We found a compendium of evidence put out by the California Arts Council that supported our claims. Step four of the scientific method, test your hypothesis by doing an experiment. We found a school willing to be a pilot. We worked with a science teacher of seventh graders at the school. When creating a STEM program for physics, we researched the laws of physics and saw the parallel to cartoons. Wile E. Coyote can run off a cliff and wait a few seconds before falling. 
Bugs Bunny can lie on a cloud. It just so happened that Chuck Jones, the animator of these cartoons, had a grandson who was starting the Chuck Jones Center for Creativity in our county. What if we used animation to teach physics, we thought. This had not been done in any pilot that we found, but it came from our research nonetheless. That led to a pilot program and a great strategic partnership with Craig Clausen of the Chuck Jones Center for Creativity. Our friends at the Orange County Community Foundation and a local family foundation were willing to fund the pilot. Step five, analyze the data and draw a conclusion. We researched the hell out of that pilot. It ran in seven classrooms. We did a pretest and a post-test for two groups, the seven classes that got the program and a control group of classes who did not get the program. The results were very interesting. The study showed that students who were already good students in math and science only did slightly better with our program. But students who were not good at math or science tested the same as the kids who were great students at the end of the program. This means that we were able to make great students out of poor students and make science matter to them. Step six, share your results. We shared our program with four neighboring school districts. We did some tweaks in another pilot. Another school asked us to create another new program for literacy. Another school asked us to create a program around history. By year two, we had four pilots running in three school districts. By year three, we had eight pilots. And within five years, we had a dozen different STEAM programs in 45 sites, four school districts, adding over $600,000 a year to our budget. We did a similar pilot in social enterprise by tweaking our social enterprise wedding business that we had on our property. We experimented with price points, security, and communication. We experimented with our audience development as well. In 2007, we had just 512 audience members for the entire summer series. By 2008, we experimented with six different pilots. We created strategic partnerships and grants based on our research and theories. We did a pilot for Latino audiences and one for Korean audiences. Within just three years, we had an 80% attendance rate. And by the end of my tenure, we had over 13,000 attendees coming every season to our little 250-seat theater. We did the same experimentation with our galleries with the same success. Innovation is not magic. It's simple, scientific method. Step one. Ask a question based on your mission. Step two, do the research. Step three, conduct a hypothesis, a theory of change, a case for funding. Step four, test your hypothesis by doing an experiment. And while you're at it, some seed money wouldn't hurt from people closest to you who believe in your ability. The more you do it, the easier it gets to get that funding. Step five, analyze the data and draw a conclusion. Step six, share your results. Now you have proof of concept. Now you're ready to scale up. Now funders are going to start coming to you because they want to fund things that are successful. Yep, the funding gets much more easier after you have proof of concept. Great innovators just do this over and over again and scale up what works. By starting small and experimenting, you don't risk your reputation if things don't work. By the time everyone knows what you're doing, you're a success. This is where scientific method meets entrepreneurship. Tweak until working and then scale and scale some more. To use a food metaphor, a taco cart becomes a lunch truck. 
but only after you've come up with your successful formula for your secret sauce, or salsa as it may be. A lunch truck becomes a fleet of trucks. A fleet becomes a brick-and-mortar restaurant, and that becomes a chain. That chain becomes a franchise. There is no end. But would KFC be anything today if they didn't figure out the 11 herbs and spices first when they were just a little Kentucky gas station that served food? Experimentation is the key to innovation. Thank you for listening to 501c3BS, Deprogramming for Organizational Growth. I'm your host, Zufalasco. 501c3BS is sponsored by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Gianneschi is spelled G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. That's G-I-A-N-N-E-S-C-H-I. Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton and the Mahalo School of Business. Check out my Twitter feed at 501c3bs, my webpage at zootvelasco.com, and my book, The First Hundred Days on Amazon. The music is provided to us from our good friends at the traditional Brazilian coro group, Grupo Falso Baiano and Amy Molinelli. Find them at grupofalsobaiano.com. Thank you for listening. Have a great day free from BS.